Is it finished? It is, isn't it? When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, there were things that happened in that moment that would forever change the course of history. But what would happen three days later completes it. And so we're here today to celebrate the resurrection. And I want to acknowledge that this is a very full service. Uh, there's about 40 to 50 people that are out in the lobby sitting out there. And what I want to say to those of you that are in the lobby right now, uh, I'll look at the camera to talk to you for a moment. Um, when, we're, when I'm done preaching, and we're going to do the final two songs after I'm done preaching, please come in the room and join us and just stand along the back so you can participate with us here in the room so that you can be a part. And uh, we're sorry you didn't make it into the space at this time. We do have a third service at 11 o'clock. If you wish to hear me twice and sing a few songs, that may be too much to ask. Uh, but we will definitely, uh, we want to welcome you in for the, the final part. To those of you in the room, uh, we are glad you're here on this Resurrection Sunday, uh, on this morning where we celebrate what Jesus has done on our behalf. And we're going to be in the book of John to start and then Acts 2. So if you could open your Bibles or go to your, your Bible apps, uh, we utilize the Uversion Bible app. If you go in there and hit the events tab, uh, you will see LEFC as one of the churches there. Just tap on that and you'll get the scriptures we're using this morning. Uh, but if you can find John chapter 20, uh, we're going to read the first 10 verses there and then just turn a few pages to the right and find uh, the book of Acts. And we're going to be in Acts 2. So again, John chapter 20. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, those four, first four books of the New Testament are the account of Jesus' life. And in that account, uh, they all talk about the moment of the resurrection and being able to understand all the elements that happened at that time. And uh, we're going to read John's account. And in John's account, he has to refer to himself as the other disciple, the one that Jesus loves. And how do you like that as an author? And you're, t you're trying to separate yourself from the other 12 and say, I'm the one that, they, that Jesus loved. The others, eh, a little bit. But me, he loved me. All right, so there's a little bit of that in there. Uh, God, in his inspiring of the, of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit inspiring, didn't take the human element, the personality, out of the writing of the Gospels or the rest of the 66 books. And so you'll see that as we read the first 10 verses of John chapter 20. So here we go, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separated from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Let me stop there. 
So you have uh, some figures here. First of all, you have John and Peter. They hear word from the women that had gone to the tomb early that morning. And, uh, and they, they heard that somebody has taken the body. Somebody has taken them away. Now we know from Mark chapter 16 that there was the, the, the women that had gone first to the tomb were met by angels. And were told that they were said that you are to go back and tell the disciples that he is risen and to meet him where he told them. And, and so what did they do? They went back and told the disciples they have taken the body. Uh, we know in verse 8 of Mark 16 that it says that they were confused, bewildered, and fearful. So a lot of excitement going on in that morning. And so there wasn't always clear communication that, that happened. And so John and Peter, hearing the news, they take off running. And this is where John makes a point four times to say he was faster than Peter. All right, so a little bit of that human element going on. Uh, but he highlights something about Peter that we might not take as a big deal, but to him it's an important piece of information when he says that John had ran faster, got there first, but did not go in. He looked in. But Peter, when he arrived, goes right into the, the grave and into the tomb and looks to see where the body lay. You see, in Hebrew understanding and law, to walk into a tomb would to be defiling oneself. Uh, it would be to make yourself unclean, so you wouldn't be able to go into the temple courts and worship. So for Peter to be as bold as he was, John points this out that he kind of violated some of the rules of this moment. So then you now have this human element going on where John's like, I, I will honor the tomb. But then he eventually goes in. Peter is bold, goes right in, goes right in, doesn't stop. And they both come out saying, he was taken from the tomb. He was taken from the tomb. So there was something not connecting of the dots. Because Jesus said, prior to going into Jerusalem, I am going to Jerusalem to die. But on the third day, I will raise again. He said it bluntly, blatantly, multiple times. But they were never connecting the dots. They were not understanding that he, Jesus, would actually die. And on the third day, Raised from the dead. The Pharisees understood it well enough to know that he had said it, that they had asked for a guard to be placed around the tomb so that it couldn't be a conspiracy where the disciples would take the body and say, see, he raised from the dead. But if the Pharisees had understood him clearly, why not his followers? It's interesting. So in verse 9, though, I think it proposes a question. It says that with all this confusion that they weren't getting it, they were still saying somebody must have taken his body. It's because in verse 9, it says, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So my question to you is, why did Jesus, why did his death and burial lead to this question of why was it vital that he must rise from the dead? Why? I mean, why? That's a, and that might be the question of the morning. We know about that he was a sinless, uh, crucified one. We know that he died horrifically. But why was him as the Lamb of God, 
being slain for the sins of the world, why wasn't that sufficient? Why was there a need for a resurrection? So now, let's go to Acts chapter 2, which is basically turning the page 50 days. Okay, so on the day of Pentecost, the day that the Holy Spirit would come upon the church and give birth to the church. An amazing event happened in that moment in Acts 2. The first uh, several verses up to uh, verse 21 is all about this moment. Because Jesus had said, again, before coming into Jerusalem and while in Jerusalem before he died, he said, when I, when I die, stay in Jerusalem because I'll rise again. And then he said after he ascended, stay in Jerusalem because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And he had given understanding as to what the role of the Holy Spirit would be, is that the Holy Spirit would be the comforter, the counselor, the presence of God upon each of them. Which would have been unthinkable, because the full presence of God was relegated to what was called the Holy of Holies, this special room in the temple. But that the separation from mankind and that Holy of Holies was a curtain. And when Jesus breathed his last on the cross, it says that curtain was torn in two, releasing God's presence by the power of his Holy Spirit upon the walking temples of mankind. All of this had to be seen as surreal to hear it before it happened. But now we're seeing it in real time uh, for them as Peter experiences this. And when the Holy Spirit came, they began to speak in languages that represented the languages over the Roman Empire, the various languages. And why that was significant is because during this celebration of the end of the Feast of Weeks and a new beginning has begun, there were Jews from all over the, the world that were there to worship during that time. And so they were bringing their native tongues to Jerusalem. And then when the Holy Spirit come, God released his spirit to be understood by the entire world. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, if you've studied it at all, there was a point post the flood, so after Noah, that mankind was getting a little bit full of himself once again. And they decided to build this tower that would be taller than any flood that God could provide. God said, if we do not scatter them, and confuse their languages. There is nothing they cannot accomplish that they set their mind to. So what did God do? He scattered them over the face of the planet and gave them new languages. So that they couldn't work together to defy God in the rebellion. Because he said, if they have the same language, there's nothing they cannot do. Acts 2. What does God do? He sends his Holy Spirit upon the church. And the church now can hear in unison the Spirit of God. And because of that, there is nothing that the church cannot accomplish. Do you understand the power of this moment? It's a debabilization of, this, of the world that the Holy Spirit comes upon the tongues of men. And now that men can communicate together under the power of the Holy Spirit. Men and women across the world can now be advocates for the gospel. No country, no dialect, no tongue are withheld from the presence of God. So if you could imagine, there were questions. 
There were questions by those who observed what just happened. How is it that we hear these Galileans who would have likely spoken Aramaic? Uh, how is it we're hearing them in our own language? How did this happen? So Peter gets up. He begins to explain what has happened in verse 14 to verse 21. This same Peter, just 50 days earlier, had denied Jesus before people, especially a 14-year-old girl. He was very much not comfortable in be having the spotlight on him prior to that, but he was cocky enough to say, I'll never defy Jesus. 50 days later, there's been a complete transformation of Peter. And now by the power of the Holy Spirit... It's Peter that speaks up and gives explanation to the work of the Spirit that they've just seen. And he explains that through from verse 14 to 21, including Scripture from the Old Testament. But then after explaining the Holy Spirit, what does Peter do? He explains Jesus. He explains Jesus to them and why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die, who Jesus was... And God's plan in all of that. And ultimately, why he must rise from the dead. So here we go. Let's start in verse 22. Because we're going to answer that question. Why was it vital that Jesus rise from the dead? So verse 22 and following. Peter speaking. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said, and this is found in Psalm 16, says, David said, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your holy, you will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Peter, after quoting David, now speaks again and says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing that what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. God, and he was exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Whew. Powerful. Again, this is an audience that's come 
They've heard the, the events that have happened over the past 50 days. They know about this miracle worker, this man who had done some incredible things of healing people, casting out demons, and speaking with authority. They had heard that testimony. But then they had also heard that he died on a cross, a Roman cross, which would have been offensive and seen as a significant defeat. So what might have been their hope for a Messiah came crashing down as there is no Messiah would allow themselves to be crucified. Peter draws upon this, saying, you know that the credentials of Jesus was validated before he ever came to Jerusalem. You heard of these things in verse 22, what he's saying. You've heard of the signs, wonders, and miracles. You know about those things. You heard that when he was baptized at the River Jordan, that God from heaven himself said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. You know who he was. Yet, verse 23, what does it say? It says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, God, by his foreknowledge, knew that the wickedness of men would not tolerate the purity of Jesus. He knew that Satan himself would not tolerate Jesus entering into his kingdom of the world. He knew, God knew, that as a result, the wickedness of men and the, the ferociousness of Satan's heart, that they would come against Jesus. And it looked as if their plan, the wickedness of their heart, to come against Jesus prevailed. But what Peter says Again, this audience had heard the credentials of Jesus. They knew about him. And then they hear that he died on a cross and, and suffering that horrible, uh, deflating defeat. We thought he was the Messiah. But how could wickedness win against the Messiah? And what Peter says to them had to have completely altered their perspective. This was God's deliberate plan. He knew all these things ahead of time. And his plan was not thwarted by anything that wickedness had tried to scheme against him. And this makes me remember about Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember how Joseph had his brothers uh, actually sell, sell him into slavery. And then tell his father that Joseph had died by the death, through the death of an animal killing him. And then Joseph goes into slavery and then serves as a slave. And then gets lied against, gets thrown into prison, serves there, helps others who get out of prison. But they don't go back and advocate for him. Joseph had years of everything going against him and wickedness always winning. Joseph kept doing the right thing, the right thing, and the right thing, only to see wickedness and evil win time and time again. But then we know the story, much of it, most of us do, where Joseph, God did raise him up, and he becomes the leader to lead the known world at that time out of a, through a severe famine and provide what ultimately was God's plan to provide for the chosen family. Israel's family, the 12 sons. 
Now those brothers that had sold him into slavery come before Joseph. And, they, and he reveals who he is to them. And they're thinking that they are in trouble and dead men as, he's, as they speak. And what Joseph says next highlights what I believe God did with Jesus. It says, what you meant for evil, God brought about for a greater good. What you meant for evil, I brought about for a greater good. What they did was evil. There is no doubt about it. What they did against Joseph was evil, but God allowed it to play into his plans because he was going to raise Joseph up to be the leader that would save their nation. So too, when Jesus came on this earth, he was the first man since Adam that was able, that was born without sin. He walked without sin. Death was not due him. Death was the penalty for sin. And yet, he took on that death penalty so he could pay it for all of us. But that death penalty required somebody coming against him because Jesus wasn't going to commit suicide. No, he was going to choose to allow evilness and wickedness come against him. Seemingly thinking that it was prevailing over him. Not realizing it's playing right into the plan of God. And then Jesus was raised from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. And that's really the answer. Look at verse 24. What does it say? But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. That's the answer right there. Is that this was going to keep him from the agony of the continuation of death. It was going to keep it from having dominion over him. It was going to keep him from being under the authority of death. That is the answer. Why was the resurrection important? It's because if you understand anything about what this is saying here, it's saying that, listen, yes, it was important. It was essential that he become the Lamb of God, that he as a sinless man take on that crucifixion, so therefore becoming the Lamb of God, that a once and for all sacrifice, a payment for the penalty of sin. But that's not the end game. The end game is that God wants to raise us that when we die, that there may be life. And so he wants to have a family that will live for eternity with him where death no longer reigns. So therefore, while payment was made for the sins, death still had authority. So what did Jesus do? He took the authority back. He became the one that oversaw, and he became the one that had dominion over death. And that's why you can, you can appreciate then that the death and sacrifice of the lamb was to pay for that sin, but his resurrection gives him power over that penalty, and now he rules over death, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, it says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the story of the resurrection. That it wasn't just enough and sufficient to pay the penalty because then we're debt free, but there's still no life. He comes back from the, the grave so that he can take the keys of death and say, I now have control and death no longer is the finality of our story. We get life in Jesus if we put our faith in his work. 
That's the beauty of this text. And so when you see in Psalm 16 that it's quoting that David was giving a prophetic message that he says in verse 26, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope. Why? Because I will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. So David understood that by what's going to happen in the future, that his body was not going to be abandoned to the dead, but there is a hope to look forward to. There is a future hope. And what's that future hope? At the end of verse 27 it says, there's this holy one. There's this holy one who will die, and his body will not see decay. And that that holy one will then reveal a path to life that provides joy in the presence of God. David wrote that hundreds of years prior to the resurrection. He understood that the resurrection means that Jesus' body wasn't going to rot in the grave. It wasn't going to become broken down and, and therefore be outside the, uh, the authority of God, but rather it wasn't going to be under the authority of death, but God was going to control that which Seth wanted to control. His resurrection also now points to life in the presence of God. We don't have to wait for the presence to come. We get it now, which is what the Holy Spirit does, is that when that curtain was torn in two, that which David talks about, that the presence of God is going to provide joy, well, that joy for him was going to be that which is ahead. For us, our joy is now. Our joy is now because we get the presence of God by his Holy Spirit. And then it gives us a taste of what it's going to be like when we're actually face-to-face with Jesus. And, there, and then that leads to how should we respond? If this is the good news, how should we respond to this? Look at verse 37 and 38. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. And for all whom the Lord our God will call. Repent. That's the message that was given by John the Baptist before Jesus came. To prepare people for his coming. Is to repent. And now what it's saying is now that Jesus has come and died and resurrected. That also is the message that as we go forward is to repent. So what does it mean? It means to change our thinking and to change how we approach it with our heart. That we might pursue a new direction by faith. By faith. We repent. We we open our minds to a different outlook and realize I am a sinner. I cannot possibly reconcile myself back to God. That can only be accomplished by Jesus. And so my heart reaches out for Jesus by faith that his work as the Lamb of God is sufficient in paying for my sins. And then I hope for the resurrection is that it gives me life and life anew from here and into eternity. And then secondly, he talks about baptism. Now this isn't about baptizing, saving you. Because even Peter says later that baptism's after we are saved. So this is speaking to now that not only should we repent and come into faith with Jesus, but we should now publicly identify with him before other people and proclaim his name as Lord and Savior. We will be baptizing people uh, the first Sunday in June 
in, in the park, in, in Lidditt Springs Park. And let me tell you, I'm excited to bring redemption back to that park. If you've read anything about the papers, of our local papers here, we need to bring the talk of the resurrection back to that park. And we are going to initiate that this summer. And the opportunity to end that service by baptisms, where we proclaim what God is doing in our lives before our community, how special will that be? And then thirdly, what does it say after this? Is that after, when, when Peter says, repent and be baptized, and then it says, and then receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul says that when we believe, in Ephesians 1, he says, when we believe, God gives us the promised Holy Spirit who becomes our counselor, our guide, the literal presence of God to walk with us on a day-to-day -day basis. He leads us into all truth so that we can have that victorious life even when things get hard. And yes, life does bring trials. We've been talking about that out of the book of James, which is the series we're in right now. And it says that when we go through trials, it's an opportunity for us to have joy for what's going to happen through the trials. Not joy because we're in the trials, but knowing what comes after it is maturation and perseverance. So too, we have joy. As David says, we'll have joy because we know that whether this life is good or not for us, that we have something greater that's beyond this life. Because of the resurrection. Do you understand why Jesus must come out of that grave? It's so that we can have life and hope for life eternal. Let's pray. So Jesus, we acknowledge that you did the work that we couldn't have done. We acknowledge that your death, while it paid for our sins, would not have also given us the life that we now get to look forward to because of the resurrection. But this was all part of God's plan and foreknowledge. And so we acknowledge that now, that we need Jesus. We need his payment for our sins. And we need his resurrection so that we can have hope for life eternal. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we may have life. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. 2 Timothy says this, and it's Paul speaking to his little Padawan, if you will, and his younger, younger uh, protege, and, and he says this, Jesus has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel.
that you could see it all
Let's put our hands together.
It's good to have those that were in the lobby to come in and join us. Thank you very much for being a part of this. To all of you, the reason why we gather like this is because there's a sense that this is the, actually the most important day of the year. When we celebrate that which altered human history. And so by faith we can experience this. This is something that God offers freely, but it's not something that you can just simply believe here. You have to say, no, I trust in that. You see, the, believe, the demons believe fully in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but it hasn't saved them. It's because they're not putting faith into it, or they trust in that work for themselves. And so here's the difference. For us human beings, that's who Jesus died for, is that it's a free gift that we must receive by faith, knowing that his payment, being the Lamb of God, paying for sins once and for all, was worthy enough and capable enough to cover over a multitude of sins. And so by faith we receive that. And then we trust in the hope that we have that lies ahead because we know he controls death. We trust in that work, that he has the keys. And for all those who have called upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And that's why we celebrate. If you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, your right. They'll be glad to pray with you. We want you to be able to remember that on this day, Jesus has the keys. He is the victor. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? I'll tell you, it's Jesus. Amen? Go and celebrate this Resurrection Sunday with smiles on your faces. God bless.